0: You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. As well, these podcasts can be heard at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. There are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, which are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of Collected Works Volume 82 by Rudolf Steiner. Six lectures entitled Becoming Fully Human. The Significance of Anthroposophy in Contemporary Spiritual Life, translated by Jeff Martin. This is Lecture 4, entitled The Anthroposophic Research Method, given at The Hague, April 10, 1922. What is most disconcerting about anthroposophy for many people who are not yet more closely acquainted with it is that this anthroposophy not only has to speak about different things than people are accustomed to hear today in outer science and in life, but that it also has to speak in a different way, in a different form. And in a certain sense, people forgive anthroposophy least of all, precisely because of this other way of expression, this other form. They immediately begin to measure and criticize what anthroposophy has to say according to what they are accustomed to what they are otherwise given in today's science and in today's culture. What I have just said will probably emerge primarily in relation to today's lecture, when I have to speak before you about the way, about the methods, anthroposophy uses to arrive at its research results. These methods have something quite different about them than the external methods of observation, and also than the ordinary methods of thinking. Today, when we talk about scientific methodology, we are used to hearing things explained in an external way, with observations, experiments, and so on. And in the treatment of these observations and these experiments, we then see the methods of research. It is not like this with Anthroposophy, especially when it is about the foundations of Anthroposophy and that is what I mainly have to talk about today. Certainly when anthroposophy extends over the individual sciences, as can be seen from the discussions already held here over mathematics, physics, chemistry, biology, and so on, then the methods of spiritual research, of which I have to speak today, will in some way interact with the experimental and observational methods that people are accustomed to in the clinic, in the laboratory, in the observatory, and so on. But today, for us, it should first of all be about the foundation, about the way, so to speak, in which we enter into that state of soul through which we can present anthroposophic results to the world. It is an absolute fact that research in the field of anthroposophy can only be undertaken when the researchers develop their soul forces, their powers of cognition, further than is required in ordinary life, in ordinary science. We must develop what I would like to call intellectual modesty. This intellectual modesty can be characterized in the following way. Think back to the time when you were a child. Think of the mentally vague experiences of your first years of childhood. You will have to say to yourself that the clear overview of life and of the world that you have acquired in later life, was then still missing. The ability to orient to the world was still missing. You have developed all this in yourself. Compared to childhood, you have become a completely different person, not only physically, but also mentally and spiritually. Abilities have sprouted from within that now serve you in life and in science. As to the condition of the human soul today... You say to yourself, certainly education and life have drawn certain abilities out of my inner being, but now I am thus finished. Now I have certain abilities. With these I want to know the world. With these I want to place myself in the world as an able, active human being. With these abilities I also want to judge my religious, my moral impulses. You generally do not say to yourself, all that has taken place within my human soul from childhood until now could perhaps still continue to take place. However, you could also say to yourself, I could develop further abilities out of my soul. Then with full consciousness, I would make of myself a human being with completely different soul faculties, a human being who perhaps differs from today's normal human being in the same way as I myself differ in my present soul constitution, from my earlier childlike soul constitution. As I said, it takes intellectual modesty to say to yourself at a certain time of your life what I have just characterized, and then to do it practically, to do it practically in such a way that you really try to get further in bringing up hidden abilities in the soul for the purpose of further research. For where would the results of today's modern scientific research be, and where would the moral religious impulses that people have today find a place in the world, if everyone had only developed those conditions of the soul which they had in childhood? And so, it is absolutely necessary for anthroposophic spiritual scientific research to take this serious stand. I want to bring out of my soul faculties that are still dormant today in the same way as the faculties revealed today were once dormant in my soul during childhood. I must explain that not everyone who really wants to profess anthroposophic research or who wants to be active in it has to become a researcher in the sense I have just indicated. But I am saying that in order to achieve real findings, real results, something like this must occur. If these research results are then handed over to the world, they are quite accessible to common sense and can be examined by it, just as you do not have to be a painter to judge a painting artistically. Thus, in order to understand anthroposophy, it is not necessary to go through everything that I will describe today, but it is necessary for research. And it is also necessary to discuss these things for the reason that to a certain extent the anthroposophic researcher has to give an account before the public, before the world, as to how we arrive at our results. Now, I would like to start from the most fundamental thing from which you can start, especially in the present time, if you want to characterize the anthroposophic research method. Basically, you can already find everything pertaining to, let's say, the first axiom, the first most elementary thing, for understanding the anthroposophic research method, in my book titled The Philosophy of Freedom. Yes, and even in some of the books I had written before this one. The Philosophy of Freedom appeared in 1894, but was actually written much earlier. It will perhaps even surprise some who know this book, that I make this assertion, and yet it is true. The most elementary understanding of anthroposophic research methods can be drawn from the philosophy of freedom. However, what is given there as elementary understanding must be further developed. Only the most elementary principle can be found in this philosophy of freedom. But this most elementary thing is indeed to be found there. In the philosophy of freedom I have tried to determine where human moral impulses, ethical impulses, actually originate. Now, since I can only briefly characterize this philosophy of freedom today, I will characterize it in a somewhat different way than it was done in the book itself, following up on some of the things I have said here on previous days. It is strange. But it is so that whoever reads the philosophy of freedom will find, I believe, that something like a mathematical thinking prevails in it. This philosophy of freedom aims at finding the human impulses for both freedom and morality. But the way in which it speaks about the moral world is not qualitatively different from what is present in us as a state of soul when we mathematize. I have characterized this mathematizing previously. I have shown how it is livingly created from within the human being, how we then forget ourselves, as it were. We forget that we have created mathematical space from out of ourselves. We then live in this space with our perception of space. I also said that at first, when it comes to their own human abilities, people are not so much interested in the state of soul they have when they mathematize. You find only a few people in the world, I should say, who, if I may use the expression, have the right respect for mathematizing. This proper respect for mathematizing was held, for example, by a deep, charming, and extraordinarily sympathetic poet named Novalis. Those who let Novalis's poetry have an effect on them will have the impression, here's a wonderful lyrical zest, here is complete enthusiasm, and here the soul is all poetry. When Navalis, the wonderful lyricist, comes to speak of mathematizing, he says something like, in mathematizing, we basically have the most beautiful, the most magnificent, the most powerful human poetry before us, quote. I know how few people admit this at first. But as I said, the kindly, profound, lyricist, Novalis, he knew, for he was a mathematician, what is stirred in the soul when we do not merely solve individual mathematical problems out of hand, even if they are problems of function theory, number theory, and the like, or of synthetic geometry. He knew how the soul feels when it is so enraptured that it forgets itself, knowing itself outside, in space. But now one thing is possible. If you know this mathematizing state of soul, of which Navalis speaks so wonderfully, it is possible to gain something quite different out of the same state of soul, namely the experience of moral impulses. In other words, if you succeed in grasping and experiencing moral problems with the same inner clarity, with the same inner certainty, as you solve, let's say, the Pythagorean theorem, then you know, with this grasping of moral problems, I am inwardly in the spiritual, in the supersensible world. And you can speak about the fact that in this supersensible world, moral impulses, moral intuitions, flow into the soul. You know in that you feel yourself in this state of soul within the moral world that you are in a supersensible world that has nothing to do at first with what can be perceived externally through the senses. You feel yourself in a world where firstly you experience moral impulses directly with your deepest inner being. You are united with them. And because you are at one with them, they are intuitive realizations. And secondly, you know that no matter how long you look around in the sense world, no matter how astutely you think, observe, and experiment, what you can discover as moral intuitions in the mathematical world, if I may put it this way, cannot come to you from any external sense world. They come to you from the supersensible world. But this means, in other words, that they are inspired. The most real, the deepest moral impulses we can receive from the supersensible world are intuitions, which are at the same time inspirations for our soul. And although they are not vivid, do not appear in pictures, they are there as are sense-perceptions themselves. As the sense-perceptions are in the field of the sensorial, so moral impulses are in the field of the supersensorial, that is, they are imaginations. And whoever has discovered the moral in the mathematical world, as meant by Novalis, experiences the knowledge that these moral intuitions, which are at the same time inspirations and imaginations, appear in a field that is completely removed from the sense world. In short, in trying to achieve a moral foundation for human life from the supersensible world, we learn to cognize how the soul must experience if it wants to be in the supersensible world. And we have to say that for us today, I've explained how it was different for those who went through the practice of yoga, or who went through the practice of grammar, rhetoric, dialectic, and so on. The best way of all. To know how to get out of our sense perceptible body and live in a purely spiritual world is to live in this purely supersensible world in the way I tried to indicate in my book, The Philosophy of Freedom. I know that many people are not satisfied with this way of living into the spiritual world because they would prefer to accept only such moral truths as appear as commandments, as conventional facts, and so on. I don't have to go on about the philosophy of freedom here, but only about its basic method. When you have become acquainted, however, with this special way of standing in the supersensible world, you receive an incentive to go further. You want to try to penetrate from other realms of life into a supersensible world, in contrast to the sense world. And then you gradually come to realize that it is possible to have real methods of inner spiritual development, which also lead to a path that views the whole cosmos and human inner knowledge in the way one otherwise views only the moral element in the sense of the philosophy of freedom. Conversely, if you do not go into the actual foundation of the matter, you still do not want to accept that what is moral concerns the supersensible. Now, the methods by which you can reach up into the supersensible world in other fields consist in developing your ordinary soul forces, the same forces we use in ordinary life and in ordinary science. And these soul forces are, first of all, if we characterize them externally in an abstract way, thinking, feeling, and willing. We distinguish these three soul faculties, thinking, feeling, and willing. But in the unified life of the soul, they are not at all so strictly separated from each other. We should actually say, when we speak of thinking, for instance, of mental imagining, we speak of a soul faculty that is penetrated throughout with will and also feeling, but is mainly thinking. In the will, again, thoughts certainly penetrate it, but it is mainly will. Thus, it is only the most prominent that is designated as an individual soul faculty, while everywhere under the surface, you could say, also lie the other soul faculties. This becomes especially important when it comes to the further training and development of the ability to think, of the power of thought. For here we must be clear about the following. First of all, we must be clear about how we relate to the things in our environment and to ourselves in ordinary life and in ordinary science. Firstly, we have sense impressions through the eyes, through the ears, and so on. We live with a certain inner intensity in these sense impressions. Then we make mental images about these impressions we perceive through the senses. We then turn away from the things we have perceived with our senses. We are now left with mental images as after-images of what has been experienced in sense perception. But consider how pale, how shadowy the thought, the mental image has become of what we experienced with full vividness in sense perception. These mental images that had attached themselves to the sense impressions during perception are now pale and shadowy. And we are accustomed in life and even in ordinary science to let the sense perceptions speak to us and to surrender passively to these sensory perceptions so that they awaken in us the mental images that make permanent for us what we have perceived through the senses. And then we can, more or less clearly, even after a longer period of time or throughout our whole life, again bring forth as memories, from the underground of our soul, from our human being, that which we have externally experienced through the senses. The mental images that are otherwise attached to sense perceptions and are pale and shadowy compared to these sense perceptions can also sprout forth from our memory. We experience again inwardly in our life of mental images what we once perceived outwardly through the senses. We experience it again through memory. Thus we should be clear, very clear, about the fact that pretty much all of our ordinary life Also, that which is immersed in science proceeds in this way with regard to mental images. We expose ourselves to the liveliness of sensory perceptions, and we then get pale mental images that we can bring up again from within ourselves as memories of what we have received from outside as impressions. Our inner life is mostly nothing but, more or less, transformed external sense perceptions metamorphosed into mental images. I will not go into the deeper nature of memory today because I want to describe how what I have just characterized as mental images can be further developed. It can be developed further by not thinking in such a way that this thinking is only connected to outer sense perceptions, but by thinking according to those methods which I have called meditation, concentration, and so on, The names are not important. In my books, title, Knowledge of the Higher Worlds, CW10, and An Outline of Esoteric Science, CW13. You will find all the details of how to proceed in these books. I only want now to present the principle. While otherwise we get thoughts by passively surrendering ourselves to sense perceptions, or by letting the reverberations of these experiences reappear as memories, we now attempt, in order to become anthroposophical spiritual researchers, through inner free volition, as we have learned it from mathematics, from the solving of mathematical problems, that is, in such a way that we accomplish everything in full consciousness, and not in a dreamy, hallucinatory condition, which would be the opposite of what I will describe today, We attempt thus in full consciousness to surrender ourselves to thinking and mental picturing so that we learn to rest on mental images that we have voluntarily placed in our consciousness. It is quite good if you put into the center of your consciousness mental images that are as manageable as possible, that is, not those in which you can experience all kinds of nebulous, mystical stuff, but those which you can easily survey. Then it does not depend on what kind of mental image you have there, but it depends on the mental activity that you now develop while meditating. Just notice. If you continuously tense a muscle, which you need for work, the muscle becomes strong. The same thing happens with your mental thinking power if you concentrate again and again on mental images which you place at the center of your consciousness. These exercises sometimes last for years. They can also last for a shorter time, depending on a person's disposition. The thinking power becomes stronger and stronger, and it finally reaches a point where you can say, Now I am able to have my mental images as vividly as I otherwise only have external sense impressions. Mind you, I don't have hallucinations or illusions, which of course come unconsciously, I now live in inner mental images that are as lively as I otherwise only experience with outer sense perceptions. But I live in them with full consciousness, not with that dreamy mood of the soul, that mystically nebulous mood of the soul as is present in hallucinations or visions. It must be a mathematical state of mind throughout through which you live into such an inner experience of mere mental images as you otherwise only have when you are devoted to outer sense perceptions. Just compare, to say it again, the vividness and intensity of outer sense perception with what you otherwise experience in pale and shadowy thoughts. But in the way I have described, you learn more and more to be as vividly present with merely inwardly chosen thoughts, as you are otherwise only vividly present when you are stimulated by some external sense impression. No more pale and shadowy thoughts. Inwardly living thoughts. The mental power of thinking has increased. You have brought forth a new power from within your soul. You have strengthened your thinking. And if you have strengthened thinking, then you have reached the first stage of supersensible cognition. I have called it in my books the imaginative stage of cognition. You have reached the stage of imagination. This stage of imagination shows us, in that we now have such living mental images, that there is something connected to these mental images. Let's go back to ordinary sense life and to ordinary mental picturing. Today we perceive something. We are vividly inside this perception. We form a pale, shadowy mental image. After a week, let's say, prompted by something, or even freely popping up, as we might say, this mental image reappears from memory. It comes out of us, to put it trivially. That I once had a sense experience is the reason why later, from memory, from my inner human life, the corresponding mental image appears again. Now, after my practice, I am able to have intensified thoughts in my consciousness, which I therefore call imaginative thoughts, because they occur with the vividness, with the intensity of images that are really like sensory images, in spite of the fact that at first they are only thoughts. But thereby a memory, related to this imaginative image I am holding, can now come out of my own being. This is different from when I have an external sense experience that I merely stare at. And if I then haven't thought about it, no memory of it can come to me later. Thus, by the fact that I now am holding an intensely strengthened mental image in the soul, something comes to me out of my own being, which at first looks like a memory, but is exactly not a memory. Something arises now which is not a reminiscence of an outer sense experience, but is something that I have never perceived before, arising from my inner being. If I may express it this way, just as otherwise memories of ordinary experiences rise up, so now, through the power of intensified thinking, that which I have never seen inwardly before rises up from within. And I will very soon recognize what it is that is rising up, I try by progressing further and further in this meditation to bring ever greater and greater clarity to this inward arising. And I finally come to what this inward experience actually is. I come to it, this inwardly ascending. It is I myself, as I have developed in the time since my birth here on earth. Otherwise, we only have the stream of memories, from which single ones arise, which are otherwise in the unconsciousness below. I do not mean these memories. These memories are what also arise in ordinary consciousness. But what now arises, called up out of inner being by the power of intensified thinking, this is not just thought or memory thought. It is that which leads me much deeper into my inner human being than the power of memory. This is something that leads me, so to speak, down into deeper layers of my inner being, further down from where memory images lead me. This is something that shows me how, as a small child, I used the soul abilities I possessed to shape my organism plastically from the brain. Then this is what shows me how I, as a somewhat older child, have further plastically formed my inner human being with the help of the faculty of speech. In short, my innermost life appears before my soul as I have never seen it before, in an enormously mighty tableau. And what now appears before my soul is not merely a picture. I ask you to pay attention to this. It is not only an image, but it is something I recognize by grasping that it is connected with my powers of growth. It is connected with what grows in me, which also lives in me in the powers of nourishment, in the powers of circulation, in the powers of respiration. In general, it is an inner supersensible body in relation to the physical body. I am now getting to know a second being in me. I learn to recognize. That I may say to myself, you have your outer body around you, it is extended in space, and it has arms, feet, a head, and so on. That is a spatial body. But what you have now discovered through your meditation, through imaginative cognition, is an organism that lives in time, not in space. A time organism. It is difficult for people today to hear about such a time organism, but this time organism is really present in us as a second human being, and we may call it a true organism. You come to it, let's say, when you have already become an old fellow, as I may say of myself, because you know you have a certain soul configuration, the soul configuration you now carry in yourself is connected with another soul configuration that, for example, is perhaps five or six years old. And just as my left hand in my space organism is connected, hopefully, with some part of my brain in this same space organism, just as hand and brain are in this space organism, such that these individual parts relate to each other, so in time, not in space... The individual parts of the time organism relate to each other. I carry this time organism in me. In my books, I have called it the etheric body, or the body of formative forces. This body of formative forces is a time organism. It is the first thing we discover on the path of imaginative research. We survey our whole life on earth up to the present, in its inwardly creative, Supersensible forces. We do not speculate about a life force. We look at our life on earth as an inwardly organized tableau, as a time organism, as the body of formative forces. Older, less conscious views of these things, which were more intuitive, more instinctive, but in their premonitions knew something of these things, called this time body this body of formative forces, the etheric body. The expressions are not important, only what is meant by them. In the etheric body, you definitely have a reality, a temporal reality within yourself. No one really understands the formation of the human being who does not understand this etheric body. And the most significant thing about the etheric body is that in the instant when you have reached the point where you can survey, as if with a spiritual eye, E-Y-E, our whole earthly life in this life tableau, which is actually the body of formative forces, we also cease to distinguish between subjective and objective. We could paint this schematically, this etheric body or body of formative forces that we carry within us, which is a flowing time body but we must be aware that we are then painting something in an instant that is continuously flowing. Just as you cannot paint the lightning, you cannot paint this etheric body. You always paint only one moment, which is held fast. We must be clear that it depends on this body of formative forces how we are formed as human beings. And at the moment when you become aware of how your etheric body is a body of forces, You realize that without knowing its inner structure we cannot understand the human being. You realize that the same forces that work in your etheric body also pervade the world as etheric forces. Thus the difference between subjective and objective ceases to have a meaning. You realize this body of formative forces is connected with a great course of universal time and we stand within this stream as a member of this great universe. We begin to speak of the etheric processes of the universe, for these become clear to us at the moment when we come to such living mental images, images as vivid as outer sense perceptions. And we can achieve this through meditation, in short we then live into an etheric world but at the same time we learn to recognize the first thing that is supersensible in ourselves. We have not yet left earthly life, but we learn to recognize the supersensible within us during our earthly life. Now if we want to move forward, we must also continue our exercises. These exercises consist of many, many details. I have described them in my books, and here I will only state the principles. The first thing in these exercises is that the power of thinking is strengthened, that we come to form an imaginative thinking, a thinking that is as alive as what we otherwise only experience in sense perception. The second thing that must be developed can be characterized in the following way. Those who develop such imaginations in full consciousness, through which they then learn to recognize the etheric world, the world of formative forces, are able to see that these imaginations, these images, for their life up until now confronts them in a mighty tableau, and the outer world confronts them in a universal tableau, that these images, despite having been called forth completely freely, have a stronger hold on them than ordinary pale shadowy thoughts. Most people know that these pale, shadowy thoughts, unfortunately, fall into oblivion all too quickly, especially before their exams. But because you have unfolded strong forces within your thoughts, these thoughts now hold you tightly. They do not want to let you go. Now, in order to progress, you must not stop at this stage with the same free volition with which you have called up these images, these imaginations into the soul, with the same strength and free volition, you must also be able to remove them again. You must send them away from the soul so that you can have in your soul what I would now like to call empty consciousness. Just try to realize what this empty consciousness would look like in ordinary life. When empty consciousness occurs in ordinary life, there is then usually no more consciousness at all, and you fall asleep. The ordinary consciousness falls asleep when it becomes empty of sense impressions, memories, and so on. But that is the difference between ordinary consciousness and what you have already achieved in imaginative cognition. You learn to suppress to completely dampen down these imaginations. And you now face the world in an absolutely awake state. I would like to say, completely aware expectancy. You are awake, have nothing in consciousness, because you have eradicated the imaginations with the strong force that was necessary. You are expectantly awake to what now arises. And if you have produced empty consciousness by the fact that you first had to eradicate strengthened thinking power, then this empty consciousness does not wait in vain. Then the supersensible world penetrates into this empty consciousness, penetrates in exactly the same way as the sense world penetrates through our eyes and ears, through our warmth organism, and so on. There we make the discovery that a supersensible world surrounds us and now penetrates into the empty but awake consciousness as the spiritual world, just as we had the sense world around us before. At the same time, because we carry out all of this with absolute free, voluntary consciousness, our normal consciousness of everyday life, that is our common sense, always remains present Alongside this heightened consciousness. This is in contrast to the conditions when someone hallucinates and has visions, for in this case our whole consciousness passes over into individual visions. This is not the case with the consciousness I am talking about. Our everyday consciousness, through which we stand firmly in life and in ordinary science, remains beside us at every step, remains continuously present as a controller. Those who say that what is described as anthroposophic consciousness could be based on visions or hallucinations do not know what they are talking about. However, if now a supersensible world penetrates from our surroundings through empty consciousness, then we are also in the position to perceive still further into ourselves than merely the tableau-like etheric body described before now we are able to look beyond birth and conception. By eliminating the whole body of formative forces, we see through empty consciousness nothing more of the whole human being between birth and the present moment of experience. For if we have learned to eradicate these imaginations and to create empty consciousness, we can also eradicate everything that fills us as etheric body and look back on ourselves, with empty consciousness. Our ordinary human being still remains there, standing next to us, watching, but this heightened consciousness now penetrates out into that world in which we were before we descended from the spiritual soul world and took on an earthly body from our parents and ancestors. Now we look into the world where before we were enveloped in a physical body, we were united with those spiritual substances that are in the spiritual world. We learn to cognize how we were before we descended into physical life, and thus we now learn a further supersensible form of cognition. Firstly, considering ourselves as physical earthly beings, we have our space body, the physical body. Then, we have the second supersensible body, the etheric body, which we grasp by imaginative cognition, but which does not lead beyond this earth life. And now we have the third body. Because it leads into the supersensible starry worlds, it is called the astral body, which is only terminology. With this, you get to know the actual human soul being. You get to know this third body, which is the human being's second supersensible entity. We also have this within our physical body during earthly life, but it is veiled. It was present before our birth or our conception. Then through this contemplation, we come to the cognition of one side of our human eternity. We have lost this one side of the eternity of humanity to such a degree that modern languages hardly have a word for it anymore. We speak of immortality, of the extension of existence beyond and after death, but we only speak of this through traditions, only the traditions of the last millennia. We can also speak of an extension beyond and before birth, and this would make it necessary that we also know about the other side of eternity and coin the word unbornness, because this unbornness is the other side of eternity. Now in this way we have risen to a cognition that cannot enter our soul's constitution in any other way than by coming to know something that is completely closed to our ordinary consciousness. I have described to you how empty consciousness must arise and how the content of the supersensible world must enter from the spiritual world into this empty consciousness, in the same way as the sense world otherwise enters into eyes and ears. This second stage of supersensible cognition I call inspiration, inspired cognition. Through inspired cognition, we now enter directly into the real supersensible world. Above all, we learn to cognize ourselves as supersensible beings in our prenatal existence. We also learn to cognize the spiritual environment. And now something very significant occurs. I would like to indicate it to you today only sketchily. In the next days it will be elaborated in more detail. Take the relationship of the surrounding world to our own inner world. We can describe this in such a way that we say, for ordinary consciousness, there is the material world out there. If we now confront the human being objectively, we say, when we look into this material world through our eyes, perceive other things through our ears, then there, outside, are the material things and facts, while within the soul's being are the ideal contents of the soul in thinking, feeling, and willing. By perceiving the material world, we carry this outer material world pictorially in images within our soul's being in refined soul substance. The moment we learn to grasp the spiritual world around us in our empty consciousness, something new also appears for our inner being. Suppose I see with inspired consciousness this material world now penetrated by the spiritual world. What is seen as spiritual outside does not appear pictorially inside the human being. Rather, we now learn to recognize the spiritual outside as it is reflected inside the human being, and there it is reflected as your physical organs, as lungs, liver, heart, kidneys, and so on, as everything that at first is materially inside. There is a complete reversal, a reciprocity. While for ordinary consciousness... The material world is reflected in us in a spiritual soul way via our senses. Now the spiritual world is reflected in us through our inner organs. We come to know ourselves inwardly as physical human beings by becoming aware of the spiritual world around us. Before this, we do not understand the physical human being. Before this, we learn to know the heart, lungs and liver externally, through anatomy, but as having no connection with the external world. We get to know the heart, lungs, and liver through anatomy and physiology, but it is as if we were to learn that we have all kinds of mental images in our inner being without even realizing that these inner images relate to the outer sense world. We normally do not know that our internal organs relate to the outer spiritual world. Here, for example, lies the origin of what could become possible for a rational medicine as a consequence of spiritual science. For we now really get to know the human being. We get to know the inner yet cosmic nature of our own organism. There is no way we could know these things before this through external cognition. This is now the second stage of supersensible cognition. Of the supersensible path of research, known as the stage of inspiration. A third stage is reached by turning to the will, to volition. We can now also develop the will in particular by first becoming completely clear about the meaning of this will in ordinary life. It has already been mentioned, also from other aspects during these days that the human being is actually in relation to our will nature continuously a sleeping being. If I only raise my arm, then I have at first in a mental image the goal of raising my arm. But when I submerge this thought of the goal into my being and produce the arm movement through the will, what happens here is at first beyond the human ability of cognition. I then again perceive the lifted arm, but the will remains as unconscious for ordinary consciousness as the state experienced while sleeping remains unconscious for the sleeper. We are actually awake in ordinary consciousness only in our life of mental images. We sleep in ordinary consciousness in our life of will. But we can raise this life of will into the waking state, The exercises for this are very different from the exercises that are, first of all, thinking exercises, as I have described them. And I can best make the difference clear to you by pointing to a characteristic feature. Someone who wants to achieve something by the exercises, for example, for the observation of the etheric body, must first go through preparations. The preparatory exercises are described in the books mentioned. For example, it is a matter of preparing a quality that I would like to call presence of mind. In ordinary life, presence of mind consists in being able to make quick decisions about a situation, but this must become an habitual characteristic for someone who wants to ascend into the spiritual worlds. For what can be perceived there is not so easily perceived. It is actually so that very diligently practicing people, if I may call them this, believe I cannot perceive anything. They cannot perceive because things flit by so fast there, and you have to seize them quickly. Most people have only certain soul capacities, so that when they try to turn their attention to what they ought to experience spiritually, it is already gone. It is therefore a matter of presence of mind. Exactly the opposite quality must be trained for will exercises. In ordinary life, it is a question of completing an act of will in the most elementary way, when we walk, grasp, or move in some way. In general, an act of will is when we do something, when we perform an action, a deed. If you develop the will only inwardly in life, There is actually only a wish, no will. A real act of will is always connected with an organic process. I could also say with a combustion process. A really completed act of will indeed changes the organism. It is connected with the organism in a metabolic process. But what condition of consciousness are we in with respect to this ordinary will? we are in a condition in which we do not see through ourselves at all. When an impulse of will takes place and we look into our inner being, these will impulses in the soul are opaque. We look into darkness with respect to the will, but we can clear away this darkness. We can make ourselves transparent in soul. This requires, however, a lot of patience because now we have to extend our exercises over long periods of time. I will describe a simple exercise, the more complicated ones you will find in the books mentioned. So, let's take a simple exercise. I have a habit. For example, with my handwriting, I write in a certain way. Once you become an adult, you don't like to get used to a different handwriting. It takes effort. It requires an inner conquest. It is something... That is a part of you, even though it manifests itself outwardly through writing. Thus, the whole process of willing yourself to change your handwriting takes place inwardly. Of course, for outward reasons, I would like to advise you not to do this exercise too vigorously. I only want to illustrate something with it, not give instructions on how to falsify your handwriting. But if you could bring yourself to exert your will in such a way that you could change something so interwoven into your being as your handwriting, or also other habits, you can make your will transparent. In short, if you make yourself a completely different person through inner consciousness, through cultivating the will, you can render the will transparent. It takes years to do this. It is good in particular if you allow yourself to assimilate certain qualities that you at first only feel to be admirable but which you do not have. You can do this by resolving, for example, I will use the next eight years to acquire with all my willpower certain qualities that I do not have, certain specific ways of living. What I am describing seems easy, but one might say with Faust, but what is easy is difficult. And those who do such exercises can see that it is difficult to bring the will in this way into a different direction through strong self-discipline. In short, when what otherwise only becomes realized in those moments when the will manifests its existence outwardly in action is applied to the development of the will itself, It leads us to really look deep into ourselves, to make ourselves completely transparent with respect to the will. Again, you will find more details about these exercises in my books. By means of a comparison, I would like to try to make clear to you what one achieves here. How is it that we can actually see through our eyes? It is only through the fact that the eye is selfless, that it does not assert its own substantiality. It must extinguish itself. It is transparent. At the moment when the eye in any way gives up this selflessness, when it brings itself to the fore, it can no longer serve our vision. Now I do not want to say that for ordinary life our physical body is sick and must be made healthy by exercises. It is not so. For life and for ordinary science our body is of course healthy, it is no good for supersensible perception. For this, it must be transformed, although not as if it would remain continuously so transformed. The human being with ordinary common sense always remains next to it. Nor is it a question of the one merging into the other, of the ordinary healthy human being disappearing. Both the developed personality and the original personality with its common sense, remain side by side so that the latter acts in a regulated manner for the former. But for higher consciousness, which must already be empty, we arrive at the fact that our body is now no longer there for our soul's perception. We see, so to speak, through our body. We see how the will works within us. In ordinary science, we do not see how the will works. Therefore we assume that there are such things as motor nerves. It is not known that the will acts directly. I have said today that the discovery of the real existing facts can only be made when you have made yourself transparent, like a sense organ. The whole human being must become like a single sense organ, soul spiritually permeable as the eye is transparent for light, EYE. Just as we first become free through intensified thinking and attain to perception of the body of formative forces and then to perception of the prenatal astral body, so we are now able, having trained the will in this way, to cognize the other side of our eternal being. By making our physical body transparent, we are able to call before our soul the image, I say expressly the image, of what happens to us at the moment of death. When we leave the physical body, it is handed over to the physical elements. The soul, spiritual, goes over into the spiritual world. When we pass through the gate of death into the spiritual world, we perceive at this moment that our physical body becomes transparent to our soul. In intuitive cognition, this third stage of supersensible perception, our body becomes transparent. Therefore, we learn to cognize ourselves in the state we are in after death, when we no longer have a physical body. We can now disregard it. In this third intuitive stage of cognition, We have trained ourselves to disregard the physical body. Now we learn the other side of the eternity of the soul. We get to know immortality through direct vision. Anthroposophy is not philosophical speculation. It does not proceed from ordinary consciousness in order to come to know immortality, but proceeds from the awakening of abilities slumbering in the soul. We become clear about what is slumbering there through intellectual modesty and thereby raise ourselves to see into the spiritual world. We learn to spiritually cognize the universe. We learn to spiritually cognize our own eternal being. We come to know these two sides of ourselves. We learn to cognize how the human being is on the one hand between birth and death, when the soul is usually hidden, Within bodily processes. And, on the other hand, we learn to cognize the spiritual soul life, a life we unfold when we are outside the body before birth or after death. Then insights into our true self are also revealed to us. We then learn to cognize what in us passes through repeated earth lives. Tomorrow I will speak about repeated earth lives about this important result of anthroposophic research. You see, the supersensible path of cognition, the anthroposophic path of research, involves first of all reaching the world of formative forces through imaginative cognition, by cognizing the supersensible part of ourselves that is already within us during ordinary physical life as our body of formative forces. Then by ascending to inspired cognition, we cognize the astral body, that is, the soul body. Thus we come to know the act of entering into the body, and again in the stepping out of the body through death. We learn to know the human I capital. We now enter a concrete spiritual world, a world of spiritual beings. Through the development of spiritual organs, we cognize with an empty consciousness, which is nevertheless awake, a spiritual world in which spiritual beings are there beside our own spiritual soul being. In this way we look into a spiritual world. And now you realize that if you want to explore this spiritual world, you must develop these three stages of supersensible cognition. You must draw out of the soul imaginative cognition, Inspired cognition and intuitive cognition. They differentiate themselves, they organize themselves into separate stages when you seek to cognize the cosmos in its spiritual content within yourself as a spiritual being. You already receive a trace of an impression of all this when you investigate the moral world in its very essence. There we essentially come to be, even if only in regard to moral impulses, in the same world we otherwise are in, if we have the imaginative, the inspired, and the intuitive worlds before us. At first only moral impulses are, so to speak, present in this moral world, but you find them also when you have passed through imagination and inspiration to intuition. Thus, it is granted to us human beings on earth, already for ordinary consciousness, that only this world, the moral world we need for life on earth, can be here before our spiritual eye, EYE, in its supersensible nature. And if we understand the real existence of the supersensible nature of the moral, if we only correctly develop what we get to know here in ordinary consciousness, in an elementary way, as cosmology and anthropology, we can then move up to real spiritual insight into the world. Thus, when we progress from spiritual forms, then to the spiritual inner life of other spiritual beings, and an interweaving with the spiritual world, as we are interwoven here with the realms of nature, we then come face to face with our own eternal soul-being, there before the eye of our soul, EYE. This is what you can come to know from the book titled The Philosophy of Freedom, if you do not merely study it theoretically, but really experience it. It is just like reading Euclid's axioms on the first page of a geometry book and getting an idea of what is to come. Just as the whole geometry follows from these axioms, So, too, as though axiomatically, it is the whole spiritual world present according to its essence in a real insight into the moral world. But no one may therefore believe that they know the nature of the spiritual world by knowing only the nature of moral impulses. They then know only the axiomatic, the elementary. What is described in this way? As a research method for supersensible worlds, is however something strange for most people today. But those who stand within these things say to themselves, There are many things in our spiritual life today that once appeared strange and then became a matter of course. We need only really know the spiritual history of humanity, and then we will be able to say to ourselves, Today most people would regard what has been said here as something absurd, ridiculous, even comical. A time will come, however, when what I have said will be taken for granted, just as the Copernican world system was first taken to be strange and then became a matter of course. But you can feel, and feelings are the most important thing that should come out of the life of the anthroposophic worldview, that this anthroposophy really does not want to appear in opposition to what is legitimate science today. For what, in essence, does anthroposophy want to be? This question should arise from what I have discussed today about the research methods of anthroposophy. What does it want to be, this anthroposophy, in relation to the other sciences, as well as in relation to universal human life? What does it want to be? Now, when we have human beings before us, we see their external facial formations. We see their physiognomies, their gates, their movements and gestures. We cannot be satisfied if we simply state this is how their gates, their faces and so on are. We see these as outer physiognomies, but we only have a complete living experience of these human beings when we add to this outer appearance the experience of their soul-spiritual nature, their souls, when we see the soul through the outer appearance and the outer movements. But in this way, if we understand things correctly, we are also given in external science that which describes the external physiognomy of nature and of the human being. Just as we do not deny that human beings must be perceived through the senses, according to their outer forms, if we want to experience their souls, so we also do not deny that the outer physiognomy of nature and of the human being must be explained, described, grasped through an outer science, even if we then assert that behind all this there is something that is to be regarded as the soul of nature, the soul of the cosmos. And that is why, just as a reasonable person, who recognizes the soul of the human being, does not negate the body, its outer form, its physiognomy. The reasonable anthroposophist does not negate outer science. On the contrary, we want to stand fully within it. We only want, for the further development of humanity, science itself to have a soul, just as the total human being carries the soul within the physical body. Yes, we claim that it needs soul, Thus, anthroposophy does not want to be an opponent of the present scientific spirit but wants to become the soul of this scientific enterprise in the future. The end of lecture four.